Helen's Babies, Part 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Helen's Babies, by John Haberton, Part 4. In stepped Mike, with an air of the greatest secrecy, handed me a letter, and the identical box in which I had sent the flowers to Miss Mayton. What could it mean? I hastily opened the envelope, and at the same time Toddy shrieked, "'Oh, dash my dolly's cadle! There it is!' Snatched and opened the box, and displayed his doll. My heart sickened, and did not regain its strength during the perusal of the following note. Miss Mayton herewith returns to Mr. Burton the package which just arrived, with his card. She recognizes the contents as a portion of the apparent property of one of Burton's nephews, but is unable to understand why it should have been sent to her. June twentieth, 1875. Toddy, I roared as my younger nephew caressed his loathsome doll, and murmured endearing words to it. Where did you get that box? On the hat-whack, replied the youth, with perfect fearlessness. I keeps it in the bookcase drawer, and somebody took it away and put nasty old flowers in it. Where are those flowers? I demanded. Toddy looked up with considerable surprise, but promptly replied, "I froed em away. Don't want no old flowers in my dolly's cadle. That's the way she walks. See." And this horrible little destroyer of human hopes rolled that box back and forth with the most utter unconcern as he spoke endearing words to the substitute for my beautiful bouquet. To say that I looked at Toddy reprovingly is to express my feelings in the most inadequate language, but of language in which to express my feelings to Toddy I could find absolutely none. Within two or three short moments I had discovered how very anxious I really was to merit Miss Mayton's regard, and how very different was the regard I wanted from that which I had previously hoped might be accorded me. It seemed too ridiculous to be true that I, who had for years had dozens of charming lady acquaintances, and yet had always maintained my common sense and self-control, I, who had always considered it unmanly for a man to specially interest himself in any lady, until he had an income of five thousand a year, I, who had skilfully, and at many times argued, that life attachments, or attempts thereat, which were made without a careful preliminary study of the mental characteristics of the partner desired, was the most unpardonable folly. I had transgressed every one of my own rules, and, as if to mock me for any pretended wisdom and care, my weakness was made known to me by a three-year-old marplot and a hideous rag-doll. That merciful and ennobling dispensation by which providence enables us to temper the severity of our own sufferings, by alleviating those of others, came soon to my rescue. Under my stern glance Toddy gradually lost interest in his doll and its cradle, and began to thrust forth and outward his piteous lower lip, and to weep copiously. "'Dee, Lord, make me not so bad!' he cried through his tears. I doubt his having had any very clear idea of what he was saying, or whom he was addressing, but had the publican, of whose prayer Toddy made so fair a paraphrase, worn such a face when he offered his famous petition, it could not have been denied for a moment. Toddy even retired to a corner, and hid his face in self-imposed penance. 
"'Never mind, Toddy,' said I sadly. "'You didn't mean to do it, I know.' "'I want to love you,' sobbed Toddy. "'Well, come here, you poor little fellow,' said I, opening my arms, and wondering whether twas not after contemplation of some such sinner that good Bishop Tegner wrote, "'Depths of love are atonement's depths, for love is atonement.' Toddy came to my arms, shed tears freely upon my shirt-front, and finally, after heaving a very long sigh, remarked, "'Want you to love me?' I complied with his request. Theoretically, I had long believed that the higher wisdom of the Creator was most frequently expressed through the medium of his most innocent creations. Surely here was a confirmation of my theory— for who else has ever practically taught me the duty of the injured one toward his offender? I kissed Toddy and petted him, and at length succeeded in quieting him. His little face, in spite of much dirt and many tear-stains, was upturned with more of beauty in it than it ever held when its owner was full of joy. He looked earnestly, confidingly into my eyes, and I congratulated myself upon the perfection of my forgiving spirit, when Toddy suddenly re-exhibited to me my old unregenerate nature, and the incompleteness of my forgiveness by saying, "'Kish my dolly, too!' I obeyed. My forgiveness was made complete, but so was my humiliation. I abruptly closed our interview. We exchanged God bless you's, according to Budge's instructions of the previous night, and at least one of the participants in this devotional exercise hoped the petitions made by the other were distinctly heard. Then I dropped into an easy-chair in the library, and fell to thinking of Toddy's operation with my bouquet. I might explain the matter to Miss Mayton. I undoubtedly could, for she was too sensible a woman to be easily offended merely by a ridiculous mistake caused by a child. But she would laugh at me. How could she help it? and to be laughed at by Miss Mayton was a something, the mere thought of which tormented me in a manner that made me fairly ashamed of myself. Like every other young man among young men, I had been the butt of many a rough joke, and had borne them without wincing. It seemed cowardly and contemptible that I should be so sensitive under the mere thought of laughter which would probably be heard by no one but Miss Mayton herself. But the laughter of a mere acquaintance is likely to lessen respect for the person laughed at, heavens, the thought was unendurable. At any rate, I must write an early apology. When I was correspondent for the house with which I am now salesman, I reclaimed many an old customer who had wandered off. Certainly I might hope, by a well-written letter, to regain in Miss Mayton's respect whatever position I had lost. I hastily drafted a letter, corrected it carefully, copied it in due form, and forwarded it by the faithful Michael. Then I tried to read but without the least success. For hours I paced the piazza, and consumed cigars. When at last I retired, it was with many ideas, hopes, fears, and fancies, which had never before been mine. True to my trust, I looked into my nephew's rooms. There lay the boys, in postures more graceful than any which brush or chisel have ever reproduced. Toddy, in particular, wore so lovely an expression that I could not refrain from kissing him but I was none the less careful to make use of my new key, and to lock my other door also. The next day was the Sabbath. Believing fully in the binding force and worldly wisdom of the fourth commandment, 
so far as it refers to rest, I have conscientiously trained myself to sleep two hours later on the morning of the holy day than I ever allowed myself to do on business days. But having inherited, besides a New England conscience, a New England abhorrence of waste, I regularly sit up two hours later on Saturday nights than on any others, and the night preceding this particular Sabbath was no exception to the rule, as the reader may imagine from the foregoing recital. At about 5.30 a.m., however, I became conscious that my nephews were not in accord with me on the Sinaitic law. They were not only awake, but were disputing vigorously, and seemingly very loudly, for I heard their words very distinctly. With sleepy condescension I endeavoured to ignore these noisy irreverence, but I was suddenly moved to a belief in the doctrine of vicarious atonement, for a flying body, with more momentum than weight, struck me upon the not prominent bridge of my nose, and speedily and with unnecessary force accommodated itself to the outline of my eyes. After a moment spent in anguish, and in wondering how the missive came through closed doors and windows, I discovered that my pain had been caused by one of the dolls, which, from its extreme uncleanness, I suspected belonged to Toddy. I also discovered that the door between the rooms was open. "'Who threw that doll?' I shouted sternly. There came no response. "'Do you hear?' I roared. "'What is it, Uncle Harry?' asked Budge, with most exquisitely polite inflection. "'Who threw that doll?' "'Huh?' "'I say, who threw that doll?' "'Why, nobody did it.' "'Toddy, who threw that doll?' "'Budge did,' replied Toddy in muffled tones, suggestive of a brotherly hand laid forcibly over a pair of small lips. "'Budge, what did you do it for?' "'Why, why, I, because, why, you see, because, why, Toddy threw his dolly in my mouth.' "'Some of her hair went in anyhow, and I didn't want his dolly in my mouth, "'so I sent it back to him, and the foot of the bed didn't stick up enough, "'so it went from the door to your bed. That's what for.' "'The explanation seemed to bear marks of genuineness, "'albeit the pain of my eye was not alleviated thereby, "'while the exertion expended in eliciting the information "'had so thoroughly awakened me that further sleep was out of the question. "'Besides, the open door—' Had a burglar been in the room? No, my watch and pocket-book were undisturbed. Budge, who opened that door? After some hesitation, as if wondering who really did it, Budge replied, Me. How did you do it? Why, you see, we wanted a drink, and the door was fast, so we got out the window on the parazzo roof and come in your window. Here a slight pause. "'And t'was fun. "'And then we unlocked the door and come back. "'Then I should be compelled to lock my window-blinds, "'or theirs, and this in the summer season, too. "'Oh, if Helen could have but passed the house "'as that white-robed procession had filed along the piazza roof. "'I lay pondering over the vast amount of unused ingenuity "'that was locked up in millions of children, "'or employed only to work misery among suspecting adults.' when I heard light footfalls at my bedside, and saw a small shape with a grave face approach, and remark, "'I wants to come in your bed.' "'What for, Toddy?' "'To frolic, 
Papa always frolics us on Sunday mornings. Tum, Budgie, Ocken Howie's don't frolic us. Budge replied by shrieking with delight, tumbling out of bed, and hurrying to that side of my bed not already occupied by Toddy. Then those two little savages sounded the onslaught and advanced precipitately upon me. Sometimes, during the course of my life, I have had daydreams which I have told to no one. Among these has been one, not now so distinct as it was before my four years of campaigning, of one day meeting in deadly combat the painted Indian of the plains, of listening undismayed to his frightful war-whoop, and of exemplifying in my own person the inevitable result of the pale-face's superior intelligence. But upon this particular Sunday morning I relinquished this idea informally, but forever. Before the advance of these diminutive warriors I quailed contemptibly, and their battle-cry sent more terror to my soul than that member ever experienced from the well-remembered rebel yell. According to Toddy, I was going to frolic them, but from the first they took the whole business into their own little but effective hands. Toddy pronounced my knees, collectively, a horsey bonny, and bestrode them, laughing gleefully at my efforts to unseat him, and holding himself in position by digging his pudgy fingers into whatever portions of my anatomy he could most easily seize. Bud shouted, "'I want a horsey, too!' and seated himself upon my chest. "'This is the way the horsey goes,' explained he, as he slowly rocked himself backward and forward. I began to realize how my brother-in-law, who had once been a fine gymnast, had become so flat-chested. Just then Budge's face assumed a more spirited expression. His eyes opened wide and lightened up, and shouting, "'This is the way the horsey trots!' He stood upright, threw up his feet, and dropped his forty-three avoir du poids pounds forcibly upon my lungs. He repeated this operation several times before I fully recovered from the shock conveyed by his combined impudence and weight, but pain finally brought my senses back, and with a wild plunge I unseated my demoniac riders and gained a clear space in the middle of the floor. "'Ah!' screamed Toddy. "'I wants to wide horsey backin'. "'Boo!' roared Budge. "'I think you're real mean. "'I don't love you at all.' Regardless alike of Toddy's desires, of Budge's opinion, and the cessation of his regard, I performed a hasty toilette. Notwithstanding my lost rest, I savagely thanked the Lord for Sunday. At church, at least, I could be free from my tormentors.' At the breakfast-table both boys invited themselves to accompany me to the sanctuary, but I declined without thanks. To take them might be to assist somewhat in teaching them one of the best of habits, but I strongly doubted whether the severest providence would consider it my duty to endure the probable consequences of such an attempt. Besides, I might meet Miss Mayton. I both hoped and feared I might, and I could not endure the thought of appearing before her with the causes of my pleasant remembrance. Budge protested and Toddy wept, but I remained firm, although I was so willing to gratify their reasonable desires that I took them out for a long ante-service walk. While enjoying this little trip I delighted the children by killing a snake, and spoiling a slender cane at the same time. 
my own sole consolation coming from the discovery that the remains of the staff were sufficient to make a cane for Budge. While returning to the house and preparing for church, I entered into a solemn agreement with Budge, who was usually recognized as the head of this fraternal partnership. Budge contracted, for himself and brother, to make no attempts to enter my room, to refrain from fighting, to raise loose dirt only with a shovel, and to convey it to its destination by means other than their own hats and aprons, to pick no flowers, to open no water-faucets, to refer all disagreements to the cook, as arbitrator, and to build no houses of the new books which I had stacked upon the library table. In consideration of the promised faithful observance of these conditions, I agreed that Budge should be allowed to come alone to Sabbath school, which convened directly after morning service, he to start only after Maggie had pronounced him duly cleansed and clothed. As Toddy was daily kept in bed from eleven to one, I felt that I might safely worship without distracting fears, for Budge could not alone, and, in a single hour, become guilty of any particular sin. The church at Hillcrest had many more seats than members, and as but few summer visitors had yet appeared in the town, I was conscious of being industriously stared at by the native members of the congregation. This was of itself discomfort enough, but not all to which I was destined, for the usher conducted me quite near to the altar, and showed me into a pew whose only other occupant was Miss Mayton. Of course the lady did not recognize me, she was too carefully bred to do anything of the sort in church, and I spent ten uncomfortable minutes in mentally abusing the customs of good society. The beginning of the service partially ended my uneasiness, for I had no hymn-book, the pew contained none, so Miss Mayton kindly offered me a share in her own. And yet so faultlessly perfect and stranger-like was her manner, that I wondered whether her action might not have been prompted merely by a sense of Christian duty. Had I been the con of Tartary, she could not have been more polite and frigid. The music to the first hymn was an air I had never heard before, so I stumbled miserably through the tenor, although Miss Mayton rendered the soprano without a single false note. The sermon was longer than I was in the habit of listening to, and I was frequently conscious of not listening at all. As for my position and appearance, neither ever seemed so insignificant as they did throughout the entire service. End of Part 4 Read by Kara Schallenberg, www.kray.org on November 9, 2007, in Oceanside, California. Helen's Babies, Part 5 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Helen's Babies by John Haberton, Part 5 The minister reached... And finally, dear brethren, with my earnest prayers for a successful and speedy finale. It seemed to me that the congregation sympathized with me, for there was a general rustle behind me as these words were spoken. It soon became evident, however, that the hearers were moved by some other feeling, for I heard a profound titter or two behind me. Even Miss Mayton turned her head with more alacrity than was consistent with that grace which usually characterized her motions, and the minister himself made a pause of unusual length. 
I turned in my seat and saw my nephew Budge, dressed in his best, his head irreverently covered, and his new cane swinging in the most stylish manner. He paused at each pew, carefully surveyed its occupants, seemed to fail in finding the object of his search, but continued his efforts in spite of my endeavours to catch his eye. Finally he recognised a family acquaintance, and to him he unburdened his bosom by remarking, in tones easily heard throughout the church, "'I want to find my uncle!' Just then he caught my eye, smiled rapturously, hurried to me, and laid his rascally soft cheek confidingly against mine, while an audible sensation pervaded the church. What to do or say to him I scarcely knew, but my quandary was turned to wonder, as Miss Mayton, her face full of ill-repressed mirth, but her eyes full of tenderness, drew the little scamp close to her, and kissed him soundly. At the same instant the minister, not without some little hesitation, said, "'Let us pray.' I hastily bowed my head, glad of a chance to hide my face, but as I stole a glance at the cause of this irreligious disturbance, I caught Miss Mayton's eye. She was laughing so violently that the contagion was unavoidable, and I laughed all the harder as I felt that one mischievous boy had undone the mischief caused by another. After the benediction, Budge was the recipient of a great deal of attention, during the confusion of which I embraced the opportunity to say to Miss Mayton, "'Do you still sustain my sister in her opinion of my nephews, Miss Mayton?' "'I think they're too funny for anything,' replied the lady, with great enthusiasm. "'I do wish you would bring them to call upon me. "'I'm longing to see an original young gentleman.' "'Thank you,' said I. "'And I'll have Toddie bring a bouquet by way of atonement.' "'Do,' she replied, as I allowed her to pass from the pew. "'The word was an insignificant one, but it made me happy once more.' "'You see, Uncle Harry,' exclaimed Budge, as we left the church together, the Sunday school wasn't open yet, and I wanted to hear if they'd sing again in church, so I came in and you wasn't in Papa's seat, and I knew you was somewhere, so I looked for you. Bless you, thought I, snatching him into my arms, as if to hurry him into Sabbath school, but really to give him a kiss of grateful affection. You did right, exactly right. My Sunday dinner was unexceptional in point of quantity and quality, and a bottle of my brother-in-law's claret proved to be most excellent, yet a certain uneasiness of mind prevented my enjoying the meal as thoroughly as under other circumstances I might have done. My uneasiness came of a mingled sense of responsibility and ignorance. I felt that it was the proper thing for me to see that my nephews spent the day with some sense of the requirements and duties of the Sabbath. But how I was to bring it about I hardly knew. The boys were too small to have Bible lessons administered to them, and they were too lively to be kept quiet by any ordinary means. After a great deal of thought, I determined to consult the children themselves, and try to learn what their parents' custom had been. "'Budge,' said I, "'what do you do Sundays when your papa and mamma are home? What do they read to you? What do they talk about?' "'Oh, they swing us lots,' said Budge, with brightening eyes. "'And they takes us to get jacks,' observed Toddie. "'Oh, yes,' exclaimed Budge. "'Jack's in the pulpit, don't you know?' "'Hm, yes, I do remember some such thing in my youthful days. "'They grow where there's plenty of mud, don't they?' "'Yes, and there's a brook there, and ferns, and birch-bark, "'and if you don't look out, you'll tumble into the brook when you go to get birch.' 
"'And we goes to Hawk's Nest Rock,' piped Toddy, "'and Papa carries us up on his back when we gets tired.' "'And he makes us whistles,' said Budge. "'Budge,' said I, rather hastily, "'enough, in the language of the poet. "'These earthly pleasures I resign. "'And I'm rather astonished that your Papa hasn't taught you to do likewise. "'Don't he ever read to you?' "'Oh, yes!' cried Budge, clapping his hands, as a happy thought struck him. "'He gets down the Bible, the great big Bible, you know, "'and we all lay on the floor, and he reads us stories out of it. "'There's David, and Noah, and When Christ Was a Little Boy, "'and Joseph, and Turn Back Pharaoh's Army, Hallelujah.' "'And what?' "'Turn Back Pharaoh's Army, Hallelujah,' repeated Budge. "'Don't you know how Moses held out his cane over the Red Sea, "'and the water went way up one side, and way up the other side, "'and all the Israelites went across? "'It's just the same thing as drown old Pharaoh's army, hallelujah, don't you know?' "'Budge,' said I, "'I suspect you of having heard the Jubilee singers.' "'Oh, and Papa and Mamma sings us all those Jubilee songs. "'There's Swing Low, and Roll Jordan, and Steal Away, and my way's cloudy, and get on board, childens, and lots, and you can sing us every one of em. And Papa takes us in the woods and makes us canes, said Toddy. Yes, said Budge, and where there's new houses buildin', he takes us up ladders. Has he any way of putting an extension on the afternoon, I asked. I don't know what that is, said Budge, but he puts an India rubber blanket on the grass, and then we all lie down and make believe we're soldiers asleep. "'Only sometimes when we wake up, Papa stays asleep, and Mamma won't let us wake him. "'I don't think that's a very nice play.' "'Well, I think Bible stories are nicer than anything else, don't you?' "'Budge seemed somewhat in doubt. "'I think swingin' is nicer,' said he. "'Oh, no, let's get some jacks. I'll tell you what. "'Make us whistles, and we can blow on em while we're going to get the jacks. "'Toddy, dear, wouldn't you like jacks and whistles?' "'Yesh, and swingin' and birch and wants to go to Hawksnash Rock,' answered Toddy. "'Let's have Bible stories first, said I. "'The Lord mightn't like it if you didn't learn anything good today.' "'Well,' said Budge, with the regulation religious matter-of-duty face, "'let's. I guess I like about Joseph best.' "'Tell us about Blyeth,' suggested Toddy. "'Oh, no, Todd,' remonstrated Budge. "'Joseph's coat was just as bloody as Goliath's head was.' "'Then Budge turned to me and explained that "'all Todd likes Goliath, for is cause when his head was cut off it was all bloody.' "'And then Toddy, the airy sprite whom his mother described as being irresistibly drawn "'to whatever was beautiful, "'Toddy glared upon me as a butcher's apprentice might stare at a doomed lamb, and remarked, "'Blyeth's head was all bluggy, and David's sword was all bluggy, bluggy as everything.' I hastily breathed a small prayer, opened the Bible, turned to the story of Joseph, and audibly condensed it as I read. Joseph was a good little boy whose papa loved him very dearly, but his brothers didn't like him, and they sold him to go to Egypt, and he was very smart and told the people what their dreams meant, and he got to be a great man, and his brothers went to Egypt to buy corn, and Joseph sold them some, and then he let them know who he was, and he sent them home to bring their papa to Egypt, and then they all lived there together. "'That ain't it,' remarked Toddy, with the air of a man who felt himself to be unjustly treated. "'Is it, Budge?' "'Oh, no,' said Budge. "'You didn't read it good a bit.' 
I'll tell you how it is. Once there was an awful little boy named Joseph, and he had eleven butters, and they was awful eleven butters, and his papa gave him a new coat, and his butters hadn't nothing but their old jackets to wear, and one day he was carrying em their dinner, and they put him in a deep dark hole, but they didn't put his nice new coat in. They killed a kid and dipped the coat. Just think of doing that to a nice new coat. They dipped it in the kid's blood and made it all bloody. All bluggy, echoed Toddie with ferocious emphasis. Budge continued. But there were some Ishmaelites coming along that way, and the awful eleven butters took him out of the deep dark hole and sold him to the Ishmaelites, and they sold him away down in Egypt, and his poor old papa cried and cried, cause he thought a big lion ate Joseph up, but he wasn't ate up a bit, but there wasn't no post office, nor choo-choos, footnote, railway cars, nor stages in Egypt, and there wasn't any telegraphs, so Joseph couldn't let his papa know where he was, and he got so smart and so good that the king of Egypt let him sell all the corn and take care of the money. And one day some men came to buy some corn, and Joseph looked at him, and there they was his own butters, and he scared em like everything. I'd have slapped em all if I'd been Joseph, but he just scared em, and then he let em know who he was, and he kissed em, and he didn't whip em, or make em go without their breakfast, or stand in a corner, nor none of them things, and then he sent em back for their papa, and when he saw his papa comin', he ran like everything, and gave em a great big hug and a kiss. Joseph was too big to ask his papa if he'd brought him any candy, but he was awful glad to see him. And the king gave Joseph's papa a nice farm, and they all had real good times after that. And they dipped the coat in the blood and made it all bluggy, reiterated Toddy. Uncle Harry, said Budge, what do you think my papa would do if he thought I was all ate up by a lion? I guess he'd cry awful, don't you? Now tell us another story. Oh, I'll tell you. Read us bout, bout Blyeth, interrupted Toddy. You tell me about him, Toddy, said I. Why, said Toddy, Blyeth was a great big man, and Dave was great little man, and Blyeth said, Come over here and I'll eat you up, and Dave said, I ain't afraid of you. So Dave put five little stones in a sling and asked the Lord to help him, and let the sling go bang into between Blyeth's eyes and knocked him down dead. And Dave took Blyeth's sword and sworded Blyeth's head off and made it all bluggy, and Blyeth run away. This short narration was accompanied by more spirited and unexpected gestures than Mr. Gow ever puts into a long lecture. "'I don't like about Blyeth at all,' remarked Budge. "'I'd like to hear about Ferris.' "'Who?' Ferris, don't you know? Never heard of him, Budge. Why, exclaimed Budge, didn't you have no papa when you was a little boy? Yes, but he never told me about any one named Ferris. There's no such person named in Anthon's classical dictionary either. What sort of a man was he? Why, once there was a man, and his name was Ferris, Offerus, and he went about fightin' for kings, but when any king got afraid of anybody, he wouldn't fight for him no more. And one day he couldn't find no kings that wasn't afraid of nobody, and the people told him the Lord was the biggest king in the world, and he wasn't afraid of nobody or nothing. And he asked him where he could find the Lord, and they said he was way up in heaven, so nobody couldn't see him but the angels, but he liked folks to work for him instead of fight. 
so Ferris wanted to know what kind of work he could do, and the people said there was a river not far off, where there wasn't no ferry boats, cause the water runs so fast, and they guessed if he'd carry folks across, the Lord would like it. So Ferris went there, and he cut him a good strong cane, and whenever anybody wanted to go across the river, he'd carry him on his back. One night he was sitting in his little house by the fire, and smoking his pipe and reading the paper, and twas rainin' and blowin' and hailin' and stormin', and he was so glad there wasn't anybody wantin' to go cross the river, when he heard somebody call out, Ferris! And he looked out the window, but he couldn't see nobody, so he sat down again. Then somebody called, Ferris! again, and he opened the door again, and there was a little bit of a boy, bout as big as Toddy. And Ferris said, Hello, young fellow, does your mother know you're out? And the little boy said, I want to go cross the river. Well, says Ferris, you're a mighty little fellow to be travelin' alone, but hop up. So the little boy jumped up on Ferris's back, and Ferris walked into the water. Oh, my, wasn't it cold! And every step he took, that little boy got heavier, so Ferris nearly tumbled down, and they liked to both got drowned. And when they got across the river, Ferris said, Well, you are the heaviest small fry I ever carried. And he turned around to look at him, and twasn't no little boy at all, twas a big man. Twas Christ, and Christ said, Ferris, I heard you was trying to work for me, so I thought I'd come down and see you, and not let you know who I was. And now you shall have a new name. You shall be called Christophorus, cause that means Christ carrier. And everybody called him Christophorus after that. And when he died, they called him Saint Christopher, cause Saint is what they called good people when they're dead. Budge himself had the face of a rapt saint as he told this story, but my contemplation of his countenance was suddenly arrested by Toddy, who, disapproving of the unexciting nature of his brother's recital, had strayed into the garden, investigated a hornet's nest, been stung, and set up a piercing shriek. He ran into me, and as I hastily picked him up, he sobbed, "'Want to be walked!' Footnote, rocked. "'Want Toddy one boy day!' I rocked him violently, and petted him tenderly, but again he sobbed, "'Want Toddy one boy day!' "'What does the child mean?' I exclaimed. "'He wants you to sing to him about Charlie Boy one day,' said Budge. "'He always wants Mamma to sing that when he's hurt, and then he stops crying.' "'I don't know it,' said I. "'Won't Roll Jordan do, Toddy?' "'I'll tell you how it goes,' said Budge, and forthwith the youth sang the following song, a line at a time, I following him in words and air. "'Where is my little bastic?' "'Footnote. Basket. Gone. Said Charlie one boy day. I guess some little boy or girl has taken it away. And Kitty too, where is she gone? Oh dear, what shall I do? I wish I could my bastic find, and little Kitty too.' I'll go to Mamma's room and look, perhaps she may be there, for Kitty likes to take a nap in Mamma's easy chair. Oh, Mamma, Mamma, come and look, see what a little heap. Here's Kitty in the bastic here, all cuddled down to sleep. Where the applicability of this poem to my nephew's peculiar trouble appeared I could not see, but as I finished it his sobs gave place to a sigh of relief. Toddy, said I, do you love your Uncle Harry?' "'Ash, I do love you.' "'Then tell me how that ridiculous song comforts you.' "'Makes me feel good and all nicey,' replied Toddy. 
Wouldn't you feel just as good if I sang, Plunged in a gulf of dark despair? No, don't like Dr. Spares. If a Dr. Spare done anything to me, I'd knock it right down dead. With this extremely lucid remark, our conversation on this particular subject ended, but I wondered, during a few uneasy moments, whether the temporary mental aberration which had once afflicted Helen's grandfather and mine was not reappearing in this, his youngest descendant. My wondering was cut short by Budge, who remarked in a confident tone, "'Now, Uncle Harry, we'll have the whistles, I guess.' I acted upon the suggestion, and led the way to the woods. I had not had occasion to seek a hickory sapling before for years, not since the war, in fact, when I learned how hot a fire small hickory sticks would make. I had not sought wood for whistles since, gracious, nearly a quarter of a century ago. The dissimilar associations called up by these recollections threatened to put me in a frame of mind which might have resulted in a bad poem— had not my nephews kept up a lively succession of questions, such as no one but children can ask. The whistles completed, I was marched, with music, to the place where the jacks grew. It was just such a place as boys instinctively delight in, low, damp, and boggy, with a brook hiding treacherously away under overhanging ferns and grasses. The children knew by sight the plant which bore the jacks, and every discovery was announced by a piercing shriek of delight. At first I looked hurriedly toward the brook as each yell clove the air, but as I became accustomed to it my attention was diverted by some exquisite ferns. Suddenly, however, a succession of shrieks announced that something was wrong, and across a large fern I saw a small face in a great deal of agony. Budge was hurrying to the relief of his brother, and was soon as deeply embedded as Toddy was in the rich black mud at the bottom of the brook. I dashed to the rescue, stood astride the brook, and offered a hand to each boy, when a treacherous tuft of grass gave way, and with a glorious splash I went in myself. This accident turned Toddy's sorrow to laughter, but I can't say I made light of my misfortune on that account. To fall into clean water is not pleasant, even when one is trout-fishing, but to be clad in white pants, and suddenly drop nearly knee-deep into the lap of Mother Earth, is quite a different thing. I hastily picked up the children, and threw them upon the bank, and then wrathfully strode out myself, and tried to shake myself, as I have seen a Newfoundland dog do. The shake was not a success. It caused my trouser-leg to flap dismally about my ankles, and sent the streams of loathsome ooze trickling down into my shoes. My hat, of drab felt, had fallen off by the brookside, and been plentifully spattered as I got out. I looked at my youngest nephew with speechless indignation. End of Part 5 Read by Kara Schallenberg, www.kray.org On January 25th, 2008, in San Diego, California Helen's Babies, Part 6. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Helen's Babies, by John Haberton, Part 6. Uncle Harry, said Budge, "'twas real good of the Lord to let you be with us, else Toddy might have drowned." Yes, said I, and I shouldn't have much... 
"'Ocken Howie!' cried Toddy, running impetuously toward me, pulling me down, and patting my cheek with his muddy black hand. "'I loves you for taking me out de water.' "'I accept your apology,' said I, "'but let's hurry home.' There was but one residence to pass, and that, thank fortune, was so densely screened by shrubbery that the inmates could not see the road. To be sure, we were on a favorite driving road, but we could reach home in five minutes, and we might dodge into the woods if we heard a carriage coming. Ha! There came a carriage already, and we—was there ever a sorrier-looking group? There were ladies in the carriage, too. Could it be— "'Of course it was. Did the evil spirit, which guided those children, always send an attendant for Miss Mayton before he began operations? There she was, anyway, cool, neat, dainty, trying to look collected, but severely flushed by the attempt. It was of no use to drop my eyes, for she had already recognized me, so I turned to her a face which I think must have been just the one, unless more defiant, that I carried into two or three cavalry charges.' "'You seem to have been having a real good time together,' said she, with a conventional smile as the carriage passed. "'Remember, you're all going to call on me tomorrow afternoon.' "'Bless the girl! Her heart was as quick as her eyes. Almost any other young lady would have devoted her entire energy to laughing on such an occasion, but she took her earliest opportunity to make me feel at ease. Such a royal-hearted woman deserves to—' I caught myself just here, with my cheeks growing quite hot under the mud Toddy had put on them, and I led our retreat, with a more stylish carriage than my appearance could possibly have warranted, and then I consigned my nephews to the maid, with very much the air of an officer turning over a large number of prisoners he had captured. I hastily changed my soiled clothing for my best, not that I expected to see any one, but because of a sudden increase in the degree of respect I felt toward myself. When the children were put to bed, and I had no one but my thoughts for companions, I spent a delightful hour or two in imagining as possible some changes, of which I had never dared to think before. On Monday morning I was in the garden at sunrise. Toddy was to carry his expiatory bouquet to Miss Mayton that day, and I proposed that no pains should be spared to make his atonement as handsome as possible. I canvassed carefully every border, bed, and detached flowering plant, until I had as accurate an idea of their possibilities as if I had inventoried the flowers in pen and ink. This done, I consulted the servant as to the unsoiled clothing of my nephews. She laid out their entire wardrobe for my inspection, and after a rigid examination of everything, I selected the suits which the boys were to wear in the afternoon. Then I told the girl that the boys were going with me after dinner to call on some ladies, and that I desired that she should wash and dress them carefully. "'Tell me just what time you'll start, sir, and I'll begin an hour beforehand,' said she. "'That's the only way to be sure that they don't disgrace you.' For breakfast we had, among other things, some stewed oysters served in soup plates. "'Oh, Todd!' shrieked Budge. "'There's the turtle plates again. Oh, ain't I glad!' "'Oo, ee, turtle plates!' squealed Toddy. "'What on earth do you mean, boys?' I demanded. "'I'll show you,' said Budge, jumping down from his chair and bringing his plate of oysters cautiously toward me. "'Now you just put your head down underneath my plate and look up, and you'll see a turtle.' 
For a moment I forgot that I was not at a restaurant, and I took the plate, held it up, and examined its bottom. "'There!' said Budge, pointing to the trademark in colors of the makers of the crockery. "'Don't you see the turtle?' I abruptly ordered Budge to his seat, unmoved even by Toddy's remark that, "'Dey ish turtles, but dey can't quall around like other turtles.' After breakfast I devoted a great deal of fussy attention to myself. Never did my own wardrobe seem so meagre and ill-assorted. Never did I cut myself so many times while shaving. Never did I use such unsatisfactory shoe-polish. I finally gave up in despair my effort to appear genteel, and devoted myself to the bouquet. I cut almost flowers enough to dress a church, and then remorselessly excluded every one which was in the least particular imperfect. In making the bouquet I enjoyed the benefit of my nephew's assistance and counsel, and took enforced part in conversation which flowers suggested. "'Ock and Howie,' said Toddy, "'ish heaven all like this with pretty flowers, "'cause I don't see what the angels ever turns out for if tis.' "'Uncle Harry,' said Budge, "'when the leaves all go up and down and wriggle around, "'so are they talking to the wind?' "'I—I I guess so, old fellow.' "'Who are you making that bouquet for, Uncle Harry?' asked Budge. "'For a lady, for Miss Mayton, the lady that saw us all muddy yesterday afternoon,' said I. "'Oh, I like her,' said Budge. "'She looks so nice and pretty, just like a cake, just as if she was good to eat. "'Oh, I just love her, don't you?' "'Well, I respect her very highly, Budge.' "'Spect? What does spect mean?' "'Why, it means that I think she's a lady, a real pleasant lady, "'just the nicest sort of lady in the world, "'the sort of person I'd like to see every day, "'and like to see her better than anyone else.' "'Oh, why, spect and love means just the same thing, don't they, Uncle Harry?' "'Budge,' I exclaimed, somewhat hastily, "'Run ask Maggie for a piece of string, quick.' "'All right,' said Budge, moving off. "'But they do, don't they?' "'At two o'clock I instructed Maggie to dress my nephews, "'and at three we started to make our call. "'To carry Toddy's bouquet and hold a hand of each boy, "'so as to keep them from darting into the hedges for grasshoppers "'and the gutters for butterflies was no easy work, "'but I managed to do it.' As we approached Mrs. Clarkson's boarding-house I felt my hat was over one ear, and my cravat awry, but there was no opportunity to rearrange them, for I saw Alice Mayton on the piazza, and felt that she saw me. Handing the bouquet to Toddy, and promising him three sticks of candy if he would be careful and not drop it, we entered the garden. The moment we were inside the hedge, and Toddy saw a man going over the grass with a lawn-mower, he shrieked, "'Oh!' "'There's a cutter-grass!' and dropped the bouquet with a carelessness born of perfect ecstasy. I snatched it before it reached the ground, dragged the offending youth up the walk, saluted Miss Mayton, and told Toddy to give the bouquet to the lady. This he succeeded in doing, but as Miss Mayton thanked him and stooped to kiss him, he wriggled off the piazza like a little eel, shouted, "'Come on!' to his brother, and a moment later my nephews were following the cutter-grass, at a respectful distance in the rear. "'Those are my sister's best children in the world, Miss Mayton,' said I. "'Bless the little darlings,' replied the lady. "'I do love to see children enjoying themselves.' 
"'So do I,' said I, "'when I'm not responsible for their well-being. "'But if the effort I've expended on those boys "'had been directed toward the interests of my employers, "'those worthy gentlemen would consider me invaluable.' "'Miss Mayton made some witty reply, "'and we settled to a pleasant chat about mutual acquaintances, "'about books, pictures, music, and the gossip of our set.' I would cheerfully have discussed Herbert Spencer's system, the Assyrian tablets, or any other dry subject with Miss Mayton, and felt that I was richly repaid by the pleasure of seeing her. Handsome, intelligent, composed, tastefully dressed, without a suspicion of the flirt or the languid woman of fashion about her, she awakened to the uttermost every admiring sentiment and every manly feeling. But, alas, my enjoyment was probably more than I deserved, so it was cut short." There were other ladies boarding at Mrs. Clarkson's, and as Miss Mayton truthfully observed at our first meeting, men were very scarce at Hillcrest. So the ladies, by the merest accident, of course, happened upon the piazza, and each one was presented to me, and common civility made it impossible for me to speak to Miss Mayton more than once in ten minutes. At any other time and place I should have found the meeting of so many ladies a delightful experience, but now— Suddenly a compound shriek arose from the lawn, and all the ladies sprang to their feet. I followed their example, setting my teeth firmly and viciously, hoping that whichever nephew had been hurt was badly hurt. We saw Toddy running toward us with one hand in his mouth, while Budge ran beside him, exclaiming, "'Poor little Toddy, don't cry. Does it hurt you awful? Never mind. Uncle Harry'll comfort you. Don't cry, Toddy, dear.' Both boys reached the piazza steps and clambered up, Budge exclaiming, "'Oh, Uncle Harry, Toddy put his fingers in the little wheels of the cuttergrass, and it turned just the least little bitty, and it hurted him.' But Toddy ran up to me, clasped my legs, and sobbed, "'Sink Toddy one boy day!' My blood seemed to freeze. I could have choked that dreadful child, suffering though he was. I stooped over him, caressed him, promised him candy, took out my watch, and gave it to him to play with, but he returned to his original demand. A lady, the homeliest in the party, suggested that she should bind up his hand, and I inwardly blessed her, but he reiterated his request for Toddy One Boy Day, and sobbed pitifully. "'What does he mean?' asked Miss Mayton. "'He wants Uncle Harry to sing Charlie Boy one day,' explained Budge. "'He always wants that song when he's hurt anyway.' "'Oh, do sing it to him, Mr. Burton,' pleaded Miss Mayton, and all the other ladies exclaimed, "'Oh, do!' I wrathfully picked him up in my arms and hummed the air of the detested song. "'Sit in a walkin' chair,' sobbed Toddy. I obeyed, and then my tormentor remarked, "'You don't sing the wides,' words. "'I wants the wides.' I sang the words as softly as possible, with my lips close to his ear, but he roared, "'Sing louder!' "'I don't know any more of it, Toddy,' I exclaimed in desperation. "'Oh, I'll tell it all to you, Uncle Harry,' said Budge. And there, before that audience, and her— I was obliged to sing that dreadful doggerel, line for line, as Budge repeated it. 
my teeth were set tight, my brow grew clammy, and I gazed upon Toddie with terrible thoughts in my mind. No one laughed. I grew so desperate that a titter would have given relief. At last I heard some one whisper, "'See how he loves him. Poor man, he's in perfect agony over the little fellow.' Had not the song reached its natural end just then, I believe I should have tossed my wounded nephew over the piazza rail. As it was, I set him upon his feet, announced the necessity of our departure, and began to take leave, when Miss Mayton's mother insisted that we should stay to dinner. "'For myself I should be delighted, Mrs. Mayton,' said I, but my nephews have hardly learned company manners yet. I'm afraid my sister wouldn't forgive me if she heard I had taken them out to dinner. "'Oh, I'll take care of the little dears,' said Miss Mayton. "'They'll be good with me, I know.' "'I couldn't be so unkind as to let you try it, Miss Mayton,' I replied. But she insisted, and the pleasure of submitting to her will was so great that I would have risked even greater mischief.' So Miss Mayton sat down to dinner with Budge upon one side, and Toddy on the other, while I was fortunately placed opposite, from which position I could indulge in warning winks and frowns. The soup was served. I signalled the boys to tuck their napkins under their chins, and then turned to speak to the lady on my right. She politely inclined her head toward me, but her thoughts seemed elsewhere— Following her eyes, I beheld my youngest nephew with his plate upraised in both hands, his head on the tablecloth, and his eyes turned painfully upward. I dared not speak, for fear he would drop the plate. Suddenly he withdrew his head, put on an angelic smile, tilted his plate so part of its contents sought refuge in the fold of Miss Mayton's dainty snowy dress, while the offender screamed, "'Oh, oui, je turtle on my pate!' "'Budgie, je turtle on my plate!' Budge was about to raise the plate when he caught my eye, and desisted. Poor Miss Mayton actually looked discomposed for the first time in her life, so far as I knew or could imagine. She recovered quickly, however, and treated that wretched boy with the most Christian forbearance and consideration during the remainder of the meal. When the dessert was finished, she quickly excused herself— while I removed Toddy to a secluded corner of the piazza, and favoured him with a lecture which caused him to howl pitifully, and compelled me to caress him and undo all the good which my rebukes had done. Then he and Budge removed themselves to the lawn, while I awaited Miss Mayton's reappearance, to offer an apology for Toddy, and to make our adieus. It was the custom of the ladies at Mrs. Clarkson's to stroll about the lovely rural walks after dinner, and until twilight, and on this particular evening they departed in twos and threes, leaving me to make my apology without witnesses. I was rather sorry they went. It was not pleasant to feel that I was principally responsible for my nephew's blunder, and to have no opportunity to allay my conscience pangs by conversation. It seemed to me Miss Mayton was forever in appearing— I even called up my nephews to have some one to talk to. Suddenly she appeared, and in an instant I fervently blessed Toddy and the soup which the child had sent upon its aimless wanderings. I would rather pay the price of a fine dress than try to describe Miss Mayton's attire. I can only say that in style, color, and ornament it became her perfectly, and set off the beauties of a face which I had never before thought was more than pleasing and intelligent. 
Perhaps the anger which was excusable after Toddie's graceless caper had something to do with putting unusual color into her cheeks, and a brighter sparkle than usual in her eyes. Whatever was the cause, she looked queenly, and I half imagined that I detected in her face a gleam of satisfaction at the involuntary start which her unexpected appearance caused me to make. She accepted my apology for Toddie with queenly graciousness, and then, instead of proposing that we should follow the other ladies, as a moment before I had hoped she would, she dropped into a chair. I accepted the invitation. The children should have been in bed half an hour before, but my sense of responsibility had departed when Miss Mayton appeared. The little scamps were safe until they should perform some new and unexpected act of impishness. They retired to one end of the piazza, and busied themselves in experiments upon a large Newfoundland dog, while I, the happiest man alive, talked to the glorious woman before me, and enjoyed the spectacle of her radiant beauty. The twilight came and deepened, but imagination prevented the vision from fading. With the coming of the darkness and the starlight, our voices unconsciously dropped to lower tones, and her voice seemed purest music, and yet we said nothing which all the world might not have listened to without suspecting a secret. The ladies returned in little groups, but either out of womanly intuition, or in answer to my unspoken but fervent prayers, passed us and went into the house. I was affected by an odd mixture of desperate courage and despicable cowardice. I determined to tell her all, yet I shrank from the task with more terror than ever befell me in the first steps of a charge. Suddenly a small shadow came from behind us, and stood between us, and the voice of Budge remarked, "'Uncle Harry specs you, Miss Mayton.' "'Suspects me? Of what, pray?' exclaimed the lady, patting my nephew's cheek. "'Budge!' said I. I feel that my voice rose nearly to a scream. "'Budge, I must beg of you to respect the sanctity of confidential communications.' "'What is it, Budge?' persisted Miss Mayton. "'You know the old adage, Mr. Burton. "'Children and fools speak the truth. "'Of what does he suspect me, Budge?' "'Tain't suspect at all,' said Budge. "'It's aspect.' "'Expect?' echoed Miss Mayton. "'No, not ex. It's aspect. "'I know all about it, cause I ask him. "'Aspect is what folks do when they think you're nice "'and like to talk to you, and—' "'Respect is what the boy is trying to say, Miss Mayton,' I interrupted, to prevent what I feared might follow. Budge has a terrifying faculty for asking questions, and the result of some of them this morning was my endeavour to explain to him the nature of the respect in which gentlemen hold ladies. "'Yes,' continued Budge, "'I know all about it, only Uncle Harry don't say it right. What he calls aspect—' I calls love. End of section six. Read by Kara Schallenberg on January twenty fifth, two thousand eight, in San Diego, California. New year, new credit scores. Chime makes it easier to build credit by using your own money to make on-time payments with a secured Chime Credit Builder Visa credit card. Use it everywhere Visa credit cards are accepted. 
To apply, just open a Chime checking account with a qualifying direct deposit. There's no annual fee or credit check required when applying. Get started at Chime.com slash build. That's Chime.com slash build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Late payment may negatively impact your credit score. Results may vary.